0: Thank you. Thank you, guys. No, really. Really.
1: No, no. No, no. It's enough
0: now. It's enough. Thank you all very much for that. Um, Hello and welcome to Liar's League NYC. Uh, For those of you who haven't been before, Liar's League NYC is a regular live short fiction reading series featuring professionally trained actors reading original short stories by emerging and well-established writers. Selected stories are published on our website, performed here at KGB Bar, and available as a free podcast via Apple Music and Stitcher. Uh, Each of our events is themed. Tonight's uh, theme is Accident and Emergency. Uh, We've got four stories for you. We'll have two stories, an intermission, uh, and then two more stories Uh, during the intermission. we, We will have our shambolic uh, literary quiz. Uh, We have prizes to give away. Um, We are very excited tonight for two reasons. One, we're featuring a story by Rachel Lyon, who's in the house. Round of applause for Rachel. Rachel, who is uh, author of Self-Portrait with Boy and editor-in-chief of uh, Epiphany Literary Journal and co-founder of uh, our uh, favourite reading series, our second favourite reading series after our own (laughs) uh, Ditmus Lit. Um, She will maybe be helping us in our quiz later. Well, she she doesn't know that, but I'm going to draft her into helping us with that. Um, Also this month, uh, we're teaming up with uh, Pen America and the Poetry Project, uh, to help support their break out initiative, which is aimed at reintroducing incarcerated writers into the literary community. Uh, and that means throughout this month, uh, a lot of reading series around New York, uh, I think we're one of the last to be doing it, um, have been featuring uh, an incarcerated writer as part of their lineup. Um, and the idea is, again, to... Uh, it, as they say here, it's a first step towards reintegrating exiled reintegrating exile voices into our broader literary worlds. Uh, for writers in prison, access to participation in the literary community is severely limited by not only stigma and physical restriction, but financial barriers, lack of technology, and censorship. So we're going to be featuring um, uh, the writer, Arthur Longworth, uh, tonight. Um, and you can what you can do. Um, after tonight is you can actually go to a website just to give some feedback uh, to him as a writer. Um, he would really love your uh, feedback on his story. And if there's any way that you, you know, can literally get out your phone and kind of text something to him right now, uh, that would be great. Then uh, once you've heard the story, that would be fantastic. Um, the website address is bit.ly B-I-T uh, forward slash liar breakout. Um, I will repeat that uh, later, and uh, I'll also have that. We'll let those details up on our website and Facebook page as well, so you'll be able to do that after to tonight. But I'm sure he would really appreciate it. That is tonight's event. Um, you can find out more about Lyra League in general on our website at lyrazignyc.com, um, including our events, future events, and submissions deadlines, uh, because we do take submissions. Um, in the meantime, Dan and Seiji will be looking after you behind the bar tonight. Round of applause to Dan and Seiji. Woo! Give it up for them. All of from them, and needless to say, tip them well. Uh, we have an email sign-up sheet for those of you who are interested in uh, receiving our monthly newsletter, which is um, very exciting, packed with exciting information about uh, our events as well as other literary events in New York. Um, I'm going to pass this around. In the meantime, if you could uh, make sure all your phones are set to silent. Um, we harshly encourage tweeting and Facebooking and Tindering and anything that you want to do that involves us, that's great. I mean, you probably don't want to do Tindering involving us. I don't know, maybe you do. I don't know. It could be, it could be interesting. Um, but uh, if you could just make sure your phones are on silent because we do record the event for our podcast, that would be great. Um, I'm going to pass this around right now. I'm going to circulate it anti clockwise. Um, and if you're sitting comfortably, we will begin. So tonight's first story is uh, Christmas by Arthur Longworth, which will be read by Michael Um Arthur Longworth is a six-time National Pen Prison Writing Award winner and 2017 Pushcart Prize nominee. His essays have been published by The Marshall Project, Vice News, Medium, and Yes! Magazine, Arthur is the author of Zek, an American prison story from Gabalfa Press, which was nominated for the Washington State Book Award. And you can find out more about him at ArthurLongworth.com. And as I say, uh, you can uh, give him your feedback at bit.ly forward slash liar breakout. Um, Arthur's story will be read by Michael Petricelli. Michael is originally from Rhode Island, but with over 15 years in NYC under his belt, has definitely begun his evolution from starry-eyed youth to cranky old man. To be frank, he welcomes this change. You can find him on Facebook by his more normal name and on Twitter at, at tro underscore chili. But the most important account to follow is the Instagram ch- he and his wife made for Pearl, their cat. Just look for Pearl underscore pix, P-I-X. You won't regret it. So without further ado, I give you Christmas by Arthur Longworth.
1: Christmas, by Arthur Longworth. Jim Dog brings me a gift every Christmas. He's done this for the last 15 years, through three different prisons, and on five different yards. It's always food. Jim Dog crafts culinary masterworks as extravagant as the food items we're able to buy through the prison commissary allow for. I don't believe he does it just because he likes to cook. Rather, it's his way of expressing something we don't talk about. Besides, we're restricted on what we can have in here, so it isn't like he could give me much of anything else that would mean anything. We meet in the yard. After ensuring no eyes are trained on us from the gun towers, Jim Dogg hands me the package. It's always wrapped in a way that makes it impossible to discern what's inside. The first Christmas Jim this did this, the package was light and I didn't know what to expect. When I returned to the filthy, overcrowded, and crumbling century-old cell house in which I was housed at the time, I opened the package and discovered homemade Rice Krispie treats sewn with M&Ms. Another year, the package was heavy and square like a brick. Inside was a cheesecake Jim Dog put together from cream cheese packets, strawberry jam, graham crackers, and who knows what else. One year, when I was starving and freezing rain was falling in the yard, Jim Dog handed over a package that was soft like a pillow and comfortingly warm. Inside were two oversized ramen noodle burritos made with cheddar cheese and a sausage purloined from the staff kitchen. I know that Jim Dog roasted that sausage over an open flame in the back of the cell while his cellies watched for guards by holding a mirror outside the bars aimed down the tier. It's the same cooking technique that earned him a major disciplinary infraction and landed him a stint in the hole a week later. Last Christmas, the package was jumbo-sized and unwieldy, but I managed to conceal it well enough beneath my state-issued coat that I got past the line of guards at the yard gate without it being confiscated. Inside, I found a potpourri of corn chips, pretzels, sunflower kernels, raisins, and chocolate chips. The idea of giving gifts during the holidays seems odd to me. I think it's because it's a tradition handed down in families, and. I've never had one. Jim Dog does have a family, though. I know because he's shared them with me for as long as he's brought me gifts. Uh, his A mom who's worked an entire career at the post office, a, a dad who spent time behind bars, too, when he was younger, a, a brother who owns a business, a sister-in-law, uh, and a niece who Jim Dog is super proud of because she's smart like a nerd, but down to earth and compassionate enough to work at a needle exchange for intravenous drug users in the city. Last year, when Jim Dog's family invited me to join them at their table in the visiting room, I discovered that they know as much about me as I know about them. They treat me as if I'm part of their family, which brings me an inexplicable warm feeling, but also a sense of guilt. I'm conscious that I don't deserve the unreserved acceptance of Jim Dog's family, the or gifts for that matter. I didn't earn these things. In fact, I only have them because Jim Dog broke once. I feel like I shouldn't tell you this because Jim Dog and I don't even talk about it ourselves. but you don't know him, so I'll tell you. Jim Dog fell apart one evening after mail call 15 years ago. Mm-hmm in the inky, unlit shadow behind a hulking four-story cell house built to house a maximum of 500 prisoners, but inside which the state crammed nearly 1,000. The letter from the attorney said that the state denied Jim Dogg's appeal and upheld his 52-year sentence. He couldn't hold on to his mask of composure. Everything inside him he uses to stand up or move forward collapsed and turned in on itself, his will to live inverted. Nothing was left. It's the kind of shit that I don't think happens to people outside of prison, because it's, it's peculiar to an institution inside which no path to redeem oneself exists. It isn't like we can work to prove ourselves in here and possibly earn another chance. There's no structure or program for it, because it's just not the way the criminal justice system or prison works in this country. At least, it isn't the way it works in the age of mass incarceration. The inability to find inside yourself the will to persist in a circumstance as hopeless as mass incarceration isn't a condition kind words can cure. Get up, I pulled Jim Dog to his feet. Move, I pushed him forward. Walk, I had to pull and nearly drag him. Jim Dog didn't want to move, but he didn't say anything, Then I know why. At the time, I had already been in prison 20 years. Jim Dogg was young when he was sent to prison, but I was even younger when I got here. And my sentence is life without parole. How do you tell a prisoner like me that you can't? We walked the track in the yard for an hour and a half, one foot in front of the other, not saying anything, until the call came over the PA system that it was time to return to our separate cell houses for lockup. I'm not a good cook. Like gift-giving, I think a predisposition for culinary craft is probably handed down in families, too. Even so, I asked Red for his peanut butter brownie recipe and a crash course on how to put it together. I believe I can do it. And I feel compelled to. Because at this point in my sentence, so many years after Jim Dog and I walked those laps together that night on the yard in Walla Walla, I know the only thing that's kept me from breaking and my will to live from inverting has been Jim Dog's gifts during the holidays and the kindness and compassion of his family. No matter what I have to do to make it happen, Jim Dog is going to have something to smuggle back from the yard this year.
0: Thank you, Michael. And once again, that website address is bit.ly forward slash Our next story uh, is Harper's Guitar by William Shun. We have William here and Bill here in the audience. Bill, round of applause for Bill there, everyone. <laughs> and that will be read by Mark Willett. William Shun is the author of the memoir, The Accidental Terrorist. Confessions of a Reluctant Missionary, which was shortlisted for the 2015 Association for Mormon Letters Award. He is also an accomplished short fiction writer with three dozen publications in markets like Salon, Asimov's, Newtown Literary, Realms of Fantasy, and elsewhere, plus nominations for the Hugo and Nebula Awards. He is a member of the X Prize Science Fiction Advisory Council and lives in Inwood, and you can find out more about William at www.accidentalterrorist. Dot com. William's story will be read by Mark Willett. Mark Willett has acted and directed in more than 50 productions, including an eight-year stint with the Shakespeare and Company, and then later as the artistic director for Advice to the Players, a cute little New Hampshire Shakespeare company. Memorably, Mark and his wife co-directed Romeo and Juliet in Vietnam, and he served in the Peace Corps in Namibia. Lately, however, Mark keeps looking for more opportunities to tell stories. He adores his wife, Candace and enjoys reading to her before bed. Aw. So without further ado, I give you Harper's Guitar by William Shun.
2: Harper's Guitar by William Shun. Harper was 14 years old the first time he wrote his thumb. That one was a pretty short trip. The second time, he was a year older, he wasn't coming back, and it was all Joe Frank's doing. Harper couldn't remember a time when his half brother wasn't tormenting him. Joe Frank was a little more than four years older. Harper's earliest memory was of that leering, gap toothed face bending over him in bed and then biting his nose. The twisted ears and noogies of Harper's preschool years gave way to Indian burns and endless involuntary rounds of bloody knuckles during grade school. Harper learned fairly early that trying to appeal to their mother for protection or redress would only make the next session worse. They lived in a little house behind a stand of sycamores on a farm a couple hours north of St. Louis on the Illinois side of the Mississippi. Mr. Henry gave Harper's mother a break on the rent on the condition that she, or later the boys, helped out with some of the chores. The boys' tasks were simple for the most part, but assumed gargantuan dimensions on the days Joe Frank took it in his head to stand in Harper's way. A bucket of fresh eggs might get tipped out of his hands on the way to the farmhouse. A horse might escape its stall shortly after Harper had delivered its meal of alfalfa to the stable. Worst of all... He had to take great caution climbing up on the split rail fence to slop the hogs in their sty, lest a stealthy hand shove him square in the back, sending him ass over tea kettle into the trough. No matter how many times mishaps like this occurred, no matter how many times both boys suffered scoldings from Mr. Henry or hidings from their mother, no matter how many times Harper had to see a doctor, the older brother always walked away smiling. As Joe Frank zigzagged his way through high school, drinking and driving and smoking and fighting and fucking with abandon, the beatings grew worse, but at least less frequent. He was just too busy raising hell to pay Harper the customary attention. Sure, there was still the time that Joe Frank, in a blind, drunk rage, pushed Harper down the front steps and kicked him so hard he pissed blood for days. But Harper was almost content to endure the abuse, as long as it meant a few days or even a week of peace. And then one day, things changed. It was his 14th birthday, a Wednesday, overcast and cold. He trudged home from the bus through the muddy slush, filled with foreboding. It had been nine days since Joe Frank had laid hands on him, a remarkable streak that couldn't last. Harper hadn't even seen his brother in five days. Joe Frank isn't coming home, his mother told him after work that evening. It was more than she usually had to say. She wasn't even 40, but she looked tired and old. She also looked like she'd stopped off somewhere for a nip on the way home from her receptionist job at the John Deere dealership. He's been in jail, you know. No, Harper hadn't known, but he wasn't surprised. This was hardly the first time Joe Frank had gotten locked up, though... It had never been for more than a night or two before. That had been when Joe Frank was a minor, though. Now he was 18. Harper said nothing. Well, don't look so broken up about it. He's only your only brother. You'll probably be happy to hear what Judge Callum told him. Never wants to see him in court again. All charges dropped if he does something useful with his life. Join the army. She swiped away a stray tear and spat useful so that's what your brother did up and ran off with a recruiter as if his own family didn't need him at home harper stood up and walked out of the room you get back here she called after him harper you always were a selfish little brat selfish and ungrateful harper he closed the door to his bedroom and lay down on top of the covers He had been slow to believe the implications of what he was hearing, but it was finally sinking in. He felt as though a huge engine that had roared in the background of his thoughts his entire life had suddenly shut down. The silence was deafening. Harper slept for the next 11 hours. He did not dream. The rest of the eighth grade was nicer. It wasn't that he suddenly began to excel in class or that he could sleep without nightmares or that he made any close friends. School had always been a refuge of sorts, a place to still his thoughts and practice being invisible. But now, it became something he enjoyed for its own sake. He began to pay attention, to, to believe that in some ways, the world could be made to make some kind of sense. And that was before he picked up the guitar. It was near the end of that first peaceful spring. Joe Frank had been gone for almost four months. Classes were winding down, and Harper found himself standing in front of the bulletin board near the school office. Students, teachers, and staff posted here about tryouts, committee and club meetings, and items for sale or trade. The word dreadnought on the mint green three by five card was what caught his eye. He wasn't sure what it meant but it evoked visions of a huge, overwhelming, and implacable force. The clarifying guitar ran second in importance to the fact that such a monster could be his for a measly $25 or best offer. Harper ripped the card from the bulletin board, stuffed it in his back pocket, and headed straight home. His mother kept Joe Frank's bedroom locked, but Harper made simple work of the door by threading a length of bailing wire behind the latch bolt. He was pretty sure Joe Frank had, at the very least, been dealing weed, and his brother hadn't been home to grab so much as a change of underwear between his arrest and his enlistment. The bedroom smelled like wet towels and gym socks had been moldering in the corners all spring. The curtains were drawn, clothing and fast food wrappers were strewn everywhere, sneered over from the walls by Motley Crue and Scorpions posters. It didn't take Harper long to find what he was looking for. Only two pairs of socks in Joe Frank's top dresser drawer were rolled up. Each contained a thick wad of bills. Harper took all the cash from one and left the other in place. He was far more nervous dialing the phone in the kitchen than he had been stealing the money. But the male voice that answered could not have been friendlier when Harper stammered out that he was calling about the guitar. Oh, I had another call about it earlier, the man said, but they ain't showed up yet. You get here first, it's yours. Harper copied down the address, heart sinking. His guitar was more than eight miles south, back through town and out the other side. He went out to the porch and sat thinking. The sky was swimming pool blue, and the breeze smelled like wildflowers. He didn't question his need to acquire the dreadnought. He simply cataloged his available options and dismissed them, one by one. He could wait for his mother to get home and ask her for a ride, but but that would raise questions he didn't want to answer. And anyway, she wouldn't be back for at least two hours. He could ask Mr. Henry for a ride, but that would surely get back to his mother. He could call for a taxi from town, but he had no idea what that would cost, and he was not eager to spend more than necessary from what he was already thinking of as his war chest. He could take one of the horses, but if he got caught, that might be one offense too many for their precarious living situation, the mother of all unforced errors. In under two minutes, he had narrowed his choices to one, and with that option in hand, he did not delay, first he secured his war chest in a place where he was sure no one would ever find it he kept back a hundred dollars in tens and twenties then walked down to the highway and stuck out his thumb nine cars six pickup trucks and two semis roared past before a battered station wagon stopped harper shared the back seat with a wriggling baby strapped into a car seat while an overly friendly chocolate Labrador in the way back kept sniffing and licking the back of his head, the middle-aged couple up front seemed to buy his terse story about chores that needed doing in his sick grandmother's house. In fact, they had intended to turn left in town and head east, but they seemed so moved by his devotion that they offered to take him all the way. As they continued south, Harper kept his eyes peeled for the landmarks the man on the phone had given him. When he spotted the spindly metal windmill towering over a melon field, he said, watch for the blue mailbox on the left. It has a dog on it. There! The bright blue mailbox sat atop a weathered barrel. It was surmounted by the silhouette of a pointing gun dog worked in iron. The car turned into the dusty dooryard of a tidy blue farmhouse surrounded by fields of new corn. The nearby barn was also blue. A German wire-haired pointer came trotting around from behind the house as Harper exited the car. The lab started barking, so Harper hurried to shut the door before a big to-do could start. He waved at the couple and rubbed the pointer behind the ears, waiting for the car to leave before heading to the farmhouse. He felt a strange hitch in his chest at their kindness. A steel-haired man in a checked shirt was already opening the door as Harper approached it. Can I help you? The pointer slipped past Harper and into the house. Um, I called earlier. Harper said, um, about the guitar. That was you, the man said, frowning and looking him up and down. You sounded older, and, and your ride just left. He shrugged. They, they were nice to bring me this far. And you got the money? Harper nodded. The man stroked his neat mustache. Okay, you may as well see the guitar. And Cerberus seems all right with you. Come on in, have a seat. I'll be just a minute. The front room was bright, filled with furnishings and blonde wood and family photographs and silver frames. Harper salivated at the savory smell of roasting meat. As he perched on an overstuffed couch, a matronly woman with a neat bun and an apron appeared from the kitchen to offer him tea. Harper had never had tea, so he shook his head, embarrassed The dog padded in and out of the room, checking on him. When the man returned, he was cradling the most beautiful object that Harper had ever seen. The guitar was big and imposing, a little like the man himself, lacquered a rich, brilliant blue that deepened at the edges to the shade of twilight. This here belongs to our youngest. He's headed up to Urbana-Champaign now with a better guitar than this one. You want to try it? Harper stood up. The guitar was much lighter than he expected, with a colorful embroidered strap that went around his shoulder. He felt like a different person cradling it in his arms. His fingers hovered over the strings as if they were live wires that might shock him. You play? the man asked. I'm going to learn, Harper realized as he said it, that he felt no shame at the assertion. Then you'll need Kenny's books, too, if you got another five on you. The man gave a cryptic half-smile. Knowledge always comes at a price, you know. The way Harper felt holding the delicate guitar, he would have spent everything in his pocket and more to master its intricacies. He handed over the $30 with no hesitation then, as the man helped him pack the instrument and everything else into its black case, had to fend off the wife's repeated insistence that he stay for dinner. Harper won that battle but was unable to talk the man out of driving him back home once it came out that he was planning to hitch. The guitar rode with Cerberus in the bed of the shiny blue pickup. Harper wanted to be back there too, feeling the wind in his hair and watching the thick tree line to the west for glimpses of blue herons over the distant river. He made it home well before his mother did and set right to work in his room deciphering the strange notation in the instructional books By the end of the evening, the guitar was almost in tune, and he was picking his way through scales and a few awkward chords. By the end of the week, he was stumbling his way through a reasonable facsimile of a horse with no name. By the end of the summer, he could play and sing about 20 different tunes, and he was messing around with a couple of songs of his own. His mother never once asked about the guitar, where he'd gotten it, how he had paid for it. She seemed to withdraw even more into herself with Joe Frank gone, more often bringing home McDonald's or Wendy's at night than attempting to cook any actual meals. Sometimes she just dumped the food on the kitchen table and went out again, whether to Mr. Henry's or somewhere else. Harper didn't know and didn't care. He was living in a world entirely his own. Until the guitar, Harper hadn't known he could be good at anything. He might have been good at baseball or car engines or chess if they had come to him at the right time, but no, for some reason, the guitar had chosen him. Well, that's how it felt, anyway. Fingers that had never felt comfortable or even competent wielding a pencil demonstrated an inexplicable affinity for the contortions demanded by playing. The guitar, as opposed to the rest of his life, seemed comprehensible, But the magic of it was, it continued revealing deeper secrets and dimensions the more time he spent with it. The ninth grade passed like a dream he didn't want to wake up from. His grades improved, he made a couple of friends, he started taking weekly lunch hour guitar lessons from Mr. Orman, the music teacher who was startled by how much Harper had managed to learn on his own. In May, as the academic year was drawing to a close, He even auditioned for a school talent assembly playing a song he had written himself, and he made the cut. The day before the assembly, a Thursday, Harper was lost in thought as he finished his chores. He walked into the house singing his lyrics under his breath and mentally rehearsing his fingerings. He felt so relaxed that he didn't register the front door standing open. He heard the banging and crashing just before he reached the kitchen. He looked down the little hall to the left and froze. His bedroom door was open, spilling light onto the threadbare carpet. Harper's whole body shook. He took two steps back and tripped over a corner of the couch. As Harper pulled himself up, Joe Frank stuck his head out the bedroom door. There you are, shithead! His voice could have sliced cardboard. Harper ran for the door, but he'd hurt his ankle, and he sprawled in the entryway. Boots pounded behind him as he scrabbled to his feet. A hand grabbed the back of his collar. Harper spun, trying to break the grip. His brother shoved him to the floor again, where Harper landed on his back. Where is it? Joe Frank loomed over him, somehow more terrifying than ever in a buzz cut and camo fatigues. In his left hand, like he was choking a goose, was the neck of Harper's dreadnought. On his face was pure murder. Where's what? You know what? Where is my money? I I I don't know what. Joe Frank raised the guitar high above his head, two hands gripping the neck. With a silent scream, Harper wrapped his arms around his head and started to roll. The guitar caught him on the shoulder and back, splintering around him. Blue pain Flared sforzando in dissonance to the keening strings. I know you took it, you piece of shit, you little fuck. The remains of the dreadnought came down on Harper again and again as he belly-crawled out the open front door and onto the porch. When there was nothing left to hit with, Joe Frank started kicking with his shiny black boots, shots to the head and the gut. Blackness came too slowly and Black was all Harper knew until he he opened his eyes in a spindly emergency room bed. Eventually, he learned that Mr. Henry had finally seen something he couldn't write off as brothers being brothers, and had held Joe Frank at shotgun point until the sheriff's deputies and the ambulance arrived. But that was too little, too late for Harper. As soon as he was home from the hospital and could walk without immediately falling down and vomiting... And while Joe Frank was still cooling his heels, Desert Storm veteran or not, Harper retrieved not just his war chest, but the rest of what his brother had stashed in his room, staggered down to the highway, and stuck out his thumb for that second time. He'd always been told that hitching was dangerous, but based on his own experience, he had a hard time believing that. Anyway, it couldn't be more dangerous than staying put. And somewhere out there, in the bigger world, his next guitar was waiting for him to find it.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Okay, we're gonna take a uh, quick 10, 15 minute break, so uh, grab another drink. Um, We will then have our uh, literary trivia quiz at the intermission, briefly. We have four books to be won, including uh, Rachel Lyon's Self-Portrait with Boy, uh, which she may well sign for whoever wins it. Um, But uh, yeah, so stick around, grab a drink, and we will see you in 10 minutes. Um, So, uh, we have this uh, literary trivia quiz, and we're gonna ask some questions or I'm going to ask some questions. And I'm going to get Rachel to come up here, actually. Rachel, yeah, you want, I want you to come oh. up, because you're going to be the adjudicator. Um, okay. And I would get you to read out the questions, but they're so badly written and formatted that... Like, I can I, edit yeah. on the fly. So, you, you can do it. So, all you need to do is... So, when, I'm going to read a question out. When you know the answer, put your hand up. Don't shout out the question, because... Then it just gets kind of weird. Uh, and Rachel is going to kind of tell me who puts their put their hand up first. Okay. Okay. Right. Great. So these questions are all to do with uh, literary questions about accidents and emergencies. Sort of. Uh, it's quite a difficult uh, subject, as it turns out, to find literary questions about. But um, I'm going to start with some difficult questions, ish, and then get gradually easier uh, until we get rid of the books. By the way, the books are we have. Rachel Lyons' Self-Portrait with Boy. It's a great Uh, book. It's a great book, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, We have Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, a classic. A classic. Uh, We have uh, Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Also another kind of accident, emergency there. And Agatha Christie's, and then there were none. uh, Because I figured there had to be some sort of like, I don't know, murder mystery type thing. You can't go wrong with any of those. Uh, so, you will get first, first person to get the kind of first question right will get first choice. Obviously, if you don't choose Self Portrait with Boy, for whoever gets the first question or what, oh, no, right, I there I'm are going to be questions asked and eyebrows raised. So, there we go. No, okay, cool. All. all right, the first question um, The book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer is an account of a disaster on what mountain? It is indeed Mount Everest. Congratulations! <laughs> what what book would you like, sir? I would like Rachel's book. Oh, <laughs> good good answer! Round of applause for Rachel's <laughs> book. Self portrait with Boy, I'm sure Rachel will sign up for you. There you go. Two two writers tonight. So they're all together, right? Um, Okay, I'm going to get slightly more obscure now. Uh, those of you who have been to Larry's League before will know I have a great love of Judy Bloom, and I always try and get a Judy Bloom question in. This is a Judy Bloom question, ladies and gentlemen. Which Judy Bloom book opens with the gunshot robbery death of the protagonist's father who dies in her arms? Does anyone know the answer <laughs> to this? I can't. <laughs> Judy, <laughs> Judy. Yes, at the back. Are you there, God, Goddess Me, Margaret. It is not. Are you there, Goddess Me, Marguerite? No, nope. that's the one about periods. <laughs> 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 is it the one about
3: the dog with the wiry hair? The dog? You know what I'm talking about now? Is
0: that. That's, I think, Tales of a Fourth Grade, nothing? With Threshold, the dog? Yeah. No, it's not that one. Okay. No, no. Now, the answer is tiger eyes. Tiger Eyes, anyone? No? No. no? It's her best book. It's her best book. I can't believe nobody knows that. Okay, all right, all right. I'm gonna go back to something maybe slightly easier. Um, so uh, speaking of John Krakauer, uh, who wrote Into the Thin Air, he also wrote of the book Into the Wild uh, about uh, the disaffected teenager Chris McCandless who died in Alaska. Um, he lived in a vehicle in Alaska, in the wilds of Alaska, what was that vehicle? Oh,
2: this lady right here.
0: It was, a, it was a VW bus, right? It was. A, uh, it was a bus. It was a bus. I'm going to give you that because we're we're really generous here. We're generous, so you get the choice.
3: What do you choose? Um, I think I'm going to go with Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. <laughs> Ladies and
0: gentlemen. All right. Okay, uh, next question, which book by Jasmine Ward explores the plight of working class African-American family in Mississippi as they prepare for Hurricane Katrina? Which book by Jasmine Ward, yes! Salvage the Bones? It is indeed Salvage the Bones! Congratulations! <laughs> Agatha Christie too, Douglas Adams I already have time. Um Okay, uh, this is my last question uh, before I start turning to kind of random other questions. Um, the incident uh, documented in uh, Aaron Lee Ralston's autobiography A Rock and a Hard Place features uh, the writer who was trapped <laughs> in, uh, with, <laughs> underneath a boulder uh, in Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah uh, and it was made into a movie. What is the name of the movie? Uh, 127
2: Hours?
0: It is indeed 127 Whee! Hours. On, grab, uh, yeah. awesome. you will take that one. Thank you very much, Rachel. Oh, that's okay. it. That's it. that's it. You're, you're done. There you go. It. <laughs> I appreciate it. Round of applause for Rachel Lyon. Uh, quiz helper tonight. Uh, for those of you who did not win a copy of her book, that's... Everyone except William Shawn, you should go out and buy one immediately. Available from all good independent bookstores near you. There we go. Um, So our first story of the second half of the show is Gas Leak by Katherine Shaw, which will be read by Rachel Broome. Catherine Shaw has worked as a professional writer and research editor in conservation, cancer research, and global health. But her heart lies in fiction. She lives in Seattle and calls New Zealand her second home. You can find out more about her at CatherineDShaw.com. And Catherine's story will be read by Rachel Bruin. Rachel Bruin grew up in the beautiful Pacific Northwest but is thrilled to call the East Coast her current home. She's a recent graduate of NYU's graduate acting program where some of her favorite roles have included Nora in A Doll's House, part two, Bunny Flingus in The House of Blue Leaves and Masha in Three of The Three Sisters. Uh, with Tennessee Shakespeare Company, she also worked as a teaching artist with the National Endowment for the Arts funded uh, funded Romeo and Juliet Project. She is tickled to bits to be reading her beloved friend, Katie's story. Uh, so without further ado, I give you Gas Leak by Katherine
3: I walked home from yoga as usual that Saturday morning, still hungover, but cleansed with sweat and chai, ready for a shower and a nap. It was what got me out of bed for 8 a.m. class, although I usually snuck in the back at about 8.20. The hot chai tea that we ladled out of a vat on the stove after class, strong and spicy and not too sweet, infused with cinnamon and cloves and cardamom, Bombay style said the studio guru, Carl, who had a long white ponytail down to his knees, and that morning had led us through a grueling series of inversions that seemed punishment for my hangover. He instructed us upside down, first against the wall and then each other, and finally over the punishing wooden chairs, our heads dangling off our spines into the center of the room, as if lined up for some chopping block. It was nearly noon, midday, as they call it there, when I left the studio. Already, the sun was merciless. Summer in Perth, Australia. In Perth, unlike the rest of the country, they don't believe in daylight savings. And so all summer, the sun rises at 5 a.m. and scalds the earth until it sets. In Perth, in the summer, you can really feel that the sun is a continuously detonating hydrogen bomb. It's 110 for weeks on end with no ozone layer. From the years I'd spend there, I would take with me the following markers, both of which I'd never heard of before discovering them on my body and having them diagnosed. On each eye, a pinguecula, and on my forehead, a melasma, shaped uncannily like the continent itself, Australia, sun tattooed on my forehead. Our apartment was three blocks from the studio, and as I turned up the staircase, I overheard the Polish guy on the second floor talking to the old lady next door to him with the cat. Are you right, Cat Lady was saying. I can smell it, too. I smelled it yesterday, also, he said. I ring them Monday. When I reached the second floor landing, I saw that they were huddled around the gas main. Are, are you smelling gas, I asked. They both nodded casually, so I leaned in and smelled it, too. Sure enough, that distinct odor, like rotten cabbage. He has four weeks now, said the Polish guy. He had a round belly and seemed to always be in slippers. He was holding a beer. I smelled it in my apartment too on and off. For a few weeks? I asked. Both of them seemed astonishingly unfazed. We can't wait until Monday, I said. I'll ring them today. Finn was still in bed, his approach to hangovers being different than mine. I paused in the kitchen to inhale. Couldn't smell anything. Our bedroom was dark and the fan was rotating, and Finn was a still rumpled curve of blanket. "'Fin, get up quick,' I told him, shaking what i guessed was a hip. "'There's a gas leak. we got to get out.' "'Crikey,' he said. "'This was a word that seemed to be reserved for the bedroom with him. "'He stumbled out of bed, (laughs) flung his long legs into sweatpants. "'I'd met him backpacking in New Zealand, "'and then asked him to move to Australia with me "'for a degree I would come to regret at the advent of the student loan payments. (laughs)
1: "'As
3: a Kiwi, he'd never had Australia on his list of places to visit.' let alone live. Yeah, I said, apparently the neighbors have been smelling it for weeks. Weeks? I know, will you find the main to turn off and I'll go door to door. Our apartment was a 15 unit building originally built as low income housing in the 60s. Albin announced the slanted letters on the street facing side. It was that red brick ubiquitous in Australia with only one high small window in the bedroom, one in the bathroom, and one in the kitchen if not for the balcony off the living room, which was just wide enough to fit two chairs if you placed them sideways facing each other, it would have seemed a bit like prison. But we had scored the best unit in the top corner with a view, we said, because if you stood up on the edge of the couch and craned your neck, you could see a tiny square of ocean. Five minutes from the beach with rent we could afford, This was Mosman Park, a swath of land between the Indian Ocean and the Swan River, and one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city. This was our fourth move in Perth, from Wanneroo to Northbridge to North Fremantle to Mosman Park, and it would be our final, we'd vowed. Because Perth was so far from anywhere and from everywhere, it was so expensive to get by, and because we needed a visa to move to any other country together, We sorta got stuck there for a few years. Perth was hot, dry, flat, expansive, insular, and isolated. The most isolated capital city in the world, in fact. It was in the midst of a mining boom, people flocking to the city to dig up the iron ore and copper and nickel from the hills to the north, and buy souped up Holdens and build custom houses with their spoils. It made me feel flattened out and desiccated and poor. Even the Indian Ocean, lapping its shores, felt off, warm as bathwater. To a girl who grew up in the chill of the Pacific, this somehow felt bereft. I longed for my home shores in Seattle, for Finn's resplendent New Zealand. I'd made my way door-knocking down the third floor, back across the second, and back again across the ground floor, and was astounded to find that many people were just as unfazed as the Polish guy and the cat lady. It was like this in Perth. A collective shoulder shrugging was practiced, a filial sort of complacency. She'll be right, mate. Was a refrain that could be applied to bodily harm or heartbreak, to a manner of injury or loss, really, from the age you could first fathom the meaning of words. Harden up, you might hear in response to a display of weakness or vulnerability. I was just about to knock on the last door to the last apartment where a Malaysian family lived when the door opened and the mother appeared on the other side of the screen, the baby nursing at her breast. To my eyes, she looked preposterously young to be a mom. Behind her I saw a single mattress on the floor of the living room and no other furniture. Baby clothing and toys were strewn across the floor. Trying to convey to her what was happening, I eventually resorted to knocking on a pipe, and when she still shook her head, I I went ahead and mimicked an explosion. That got her attention, and from her, I finally got the reaction I'd expected from everyone else, panic. Oh, she said, kicking her shoes out the door and pulling it shut behind her. Oh, no, I work, said the young monk, pointing behind us. The baby had unlatched, and her mom was buttoning up a shirt with the name of the supermarket just a block in that direction. I'd never seen her there before. Maybe she just started. From what I managed to gather, she was going to leave the baby until her husband got home 20 minutes later. Four vans had pulled up into our parking lot, and about a dozen guys began piling out. I was so relieved to see them. I hadn't known what to expect from the apartment managers. It was Saturday, and I'd never been in any kind of emergency situation in Perth. I was afraid I'd hear, she'll be right, mate and then have to, what, call the police? But who might just say the same? Do you want me to watch her? I asked. Oh, she said, oh, you please? Uh, please, yes, very much. What's her name? I asked as she handed her over. I grasped her under the tiny arms and then transferred her to my side. I was surprised how natural it felt. Amira, she said, and then placed her hand on her own heart. Noor, she looks just like you. I said, seeing it now up close The baby and the mother were both beautiful I'm Hannah She gave me a carrier and a bottle and with that she was off to work and I was left in the blazing sun with a baby in my arms I found a small section of shade on the lawn and strapped her onto me with a carrier pulled her little feet through its sides When Finn appeared and saw the baby he smiled a half smile and shook his head Crikey, he said What happened here? <laughs> Can we keep her? I asked back but I already felt her agitation growing, her bodily separation from her mother. The three of us walked to a coffee shop on Glide Street, Amira's little feet bouncing against my thighs and my sweat beating and trickling between us. Finn took off his hat and held it above her like a halo, shading her. We sat in the air conditioning, a white lady and a white man with a brown baby. Amira began to whimper and tense her body, and when I tried to give her the bottle, she rejected it, puckering her whole mouth. I picked her up, feeling myself utterly not her mother and made some long, drawn-out sounds, totally making it up. I ate a scone and drank my flat white while Finn bounced her on his knees, wishing I'd grabbed some ibuprofen on the way out the door. Now with Amir, my hangover felt reckless and selfish, felt like a transgression. We should head back soon, I told Finn, in case the dad gets home. The dad? He asked. You didn't get his name? It was a a pretty rushed handoff. I guess it doesn't matter anyway. Dads are sort of sidelined to the show when it comes down to it. It Comes down to what? To being parents. What are you talking about? Well, breast milk, I guess. (laughs) No, no. During the breast milk phase, the dad takes care of the mom. And then as soon as that's over, she's an empty milk carton. The dad all of a sudden becomes the worshiped one. He nodded silently. This is Kiwi for satisfied. And we sat there, two people who knew nothing about parenting. I lifted Amira from his arms to mine and thought what a strange and wondrous thing it would be to lactate. To feed her with the milk of my own body. I'll leave it to you to end up with a baby of a couple strangers, said Finn and I, as I scooped Amira into the carrier again. They're not strangers, they're neighbors. And I'll take that as a compliment. On our way back to the apartment, the sun had descended enough that we were able to cling to the stretch of shade on the west side of the streets. Amira quieted. Walking seemed to soothe her. I stopped at a rose bush, leaned in, and inhaled the intoxicating sweetness, and then brushed Amira's fingers against the petals, watched her face grow calm and watchful. Soon after that, she was sleeping peacefully against my chest. On the lawn of our building, the tenants sat like would be ghosts. The cat lady stroked her tabby, and the Polish guy was swigging from a roadie. In the parking lot, one of the contractors with a gas mask dangling around his neck walked up to us. You guys the tenants who called it in? He asked. He held out his hand. Mitchell. Lucky you called this when you did, said Mitchell. He paused, shook his head. To be honest, lucky it wasn't too late already. Pipes haven't been checked since the building went up. He held out a pipe, solid red with rust with huge holes eaten through, held together in one place by a thin strip of metal. More of it was gone than left. I had a distinct vision of turning on the stove and being blown back, blown away, swift as a spark. I clutched a mirror closer. You'll be able to move back in around eight tonight, and we should have the gas going again by the end of the day tomorrow. Cute baby, he said, and I could tell he was wondering. Isn't she, I answered. We sat under the shade of a frangipani tree waiting for the dad to come home, a temporary family of three. From under the white blossoms we watched the excavation of the pipes, corroded pipes pulled out of the earth and the walls like the bowels of some prey. As the contractors stalked out the old pipe and marched it down to the dumpster, Amir suckled from her bottle, drank it almost all down, spat up, wailed for a while, and then as we walked her around the block one last time, fell back asleep. She looked so peaceful in my arms, beatific. I couldn't believe we'd all been living there all this time. What if choosing to live in this cheap apartment by the beach had turned out to be our last decision? What if we hadn't chose to live here and nobody had reported the gas until Monday? To which Finn answered, why would you even think about that? A great question. He was a judicious thinker, unlike me. For me, it was, how would you not think it? For me, my thoughts. It was no censor, no holds barred. Amira, awake again, wriggling in my arms, had begun her life here. There we sat, under the frangipani tree, not blown into the sky. When the dad came home, I handed over Amira and Finn and met our friends at the pub for a drink. A hair of the dog, we survived the gas drink. Without Amira, I felt light and free and a little restless. My beer was cold and smooth and the pub was dim and cool. After that, I turned 30 and we eloped on the beach and Finn turned 32 and we quit our jobs. And on Christmas Eve, we left Perth. On the way to our red eye, we went to a party where we ate a dinner of Christmas cookies and drank champagne and said farewell to our friends. Everything seemed surreal and augmented the way it does when you know you're leaving for good. I wore my sequined shirt to the airport and we whispered in the back row of the shuttle as the outside Perth passed us by in the indigo summer night. I think we'll ever come back? Finn asked. We were on our way to New Zealand for six weeks of our honeymoon and then on to the US, to Seattle and my family and a green card for Finn. Australia would remain terra incognita to me, home to Amira. Later, I would think of that day when we could have been thrown into the sky ripped into the incognita and i would look up the old apartment online and see walking down the street outside noir and amira their faces blurred out on my screen but undeniably them amira now up to her mother's waist a pink bow in her hair pink sneakers on her feet noir holding a stroller and in it a baby tilting a bottle to its lips
0: Okay, our final story of the evening is Chicken by Rachel Lyon, which will be read by Michaela Morton. Rachel Lyon is the author of the novel Self-Portrait with Boy, which was long listed for the Center for Fiction's 2018 First Novel Prize and is in feature film development at Topic Studios. Her short work has appeared or is forthcoming in One Story, Long Reads, Joyland, Electric Literature, and Elsewhere. She is editor-in-chief of Epiphany, and co-founder of the reading series Ditma Slit in her native Brooklyn, New York. And you can find out more about her at rachellion.work. Rachel's story will be read by Michaela Morton. Michaela is an actor, writer, and real estate agent at Compass. Her work has taken her from a quarry in Maine to an underground theater in Paris, France, to a community garden on the Lower East Side. Trained at the National Theater Institute, UNC School of the Arts, and Coucher, France. Michaela's favorite roles include Frenchie in Cabaret at Playmakers Repertory and Deepish in her own children's show Big Shoes. Formerly a ballroom dance teacher and for New York City fifth graders she now loves planting neighbors in Harlem and watching them grow. So for our final story of the evening I give you Chicken by Rachel Lyon. Chicken
4: by Rachel Lyon. My husband of 20 years wanted me to go on this retreat. Someplace up in the mountains where new age types went to drop in, turn off, tune out. As we've gotten older, he's gotten way into all kinds of self helpy crap. He says it happened slowly. I say it happened fast. First, he became a vegetarian. This guy who used to alphabetize his barbecue sauce collection.
3: We were in the Kroger
4: and I was picking through the frozen chickens. He sort of looked up at the ceiling and said, eating animals, you ingest a lot of negative
2: vibes.
4: (laughs) I said, negative what? He said, when they get slaughtered, they release fear hormones. Then later when you eat them, fear is what you eat. I said, stop fucking around and help me find a bird. He said, you're on your own. Then he started meditating. I'd come out to the porch and there he'd be. Fat legs, crossed Indian style, eyes closed, a blissful biddy smile on his face. I'd give him a kick, but he'd just breathe. I wouldn't give a shit about any of it, except that he stopped fighting with me. Used to be we'd stomp and scream until the neighbors called. I'd call him a spineless, sexless fart. He'd say I was a curse on him, tell him to go back to whatever hell portal I crawled out of. I'd call him all the fucked up names I could think of. A baboon. A slug. A scab. Until his face got red and tears formed in his eyes and he collapsed. Weak-kneed. in unhinged laughter. (laughs) Once he grabbed my hair and jerked my head back, pressed me against the wall and said, You fat bitch. If you ever, ever. I don't think I've ever had as good a time as that. (laughs) But he announced he had enough We were driving home in the old teal Chevy from I don't remember where It was dark, but I could see his hand on the wheel was trembling Can't do it anymore, he said Can't take it We never talked about the fighting, we just fought, that's all, since always I said, I thought we were having fun He said, not me, I wasn't Why would he have stuck with me so long if he didn't like it? How dare he? At the edges of the road, the black trees whizzed by. This whole time, I said. He said this whole time. The retreat was at a ranch up the mountains a couple hours east. He drove me on a Saturday morning. I sat shotgun, chasing stations. 20 minutes of talk radio, 15 minutes of country, six or seven minutes of 80s, 90s, and today, Each fizzled out, leaving a hush of static. With 40 miles to go, I turned it off. We drove in silence, rolled up the dirt road in silence. There weren't any horses or any animals at all that I could see. Just flat brown fields and a big farmhouse. A couple dour ladies in ponchos smoking on the porch. He carried my duffel for me up the steps and went with me to registration, where a girl with a name tag that said Clover got me all checked in. She had pale green hair and a lip ring and a lisp. Christ, I said to my husband when all the paperwork was done, is she a woman or a plant? (laughs) He didn't laugh. Instead, he kissed me on the cheek. In our 20 years of marriage, he's done that maybe never. He said, be good, all right, and got back in the truck and drove away. Let me tell you, the program was some hippy-dippy bullshit. (laughs) Meditation in the mornings, group therapy, a vegan lunch. Then art therapy, walking meditation, yoga, non-alcoholic cocktails, vegan dinner. they looked look at you sideways if you so much as use the F word. I'd have given my right eye for a cigarette. My left eye for a steak. Tell you the truth, I wasn't sure what I was there for. Tell you the truth, I missed him. In therapy, we were supposed to talk about what irked us. Then we'd do some kind of game together that was supposed to work it out. There was a couple there about my age, a slouchy guy and his bleached hair, pinched face wife. A couple. And me, I was there all alone, like a sucker. They were in because he'd left her for another woman. A twenty-something someone who worked at his place of business. The affair lasted all of a month, but in that time he'd managed to move out, move in with the girl, get thrown out of the girl's place, and move back in. Why his pinched-faced wife took him back, I couldn't tell. Didn't much seem like she wanted to. After she told her story, the therapist, Omario, asked her what she would say to the girl her husband fucked, if the girl were there. Pretend she's in the room with us, Michelle. What would you say to her? Most of the others found it hard to resist his soothing Jamaican accent, but Michelle just pinched up her pinched face harder and shook her head from side to side. Mm-mm, she said. You aren't ready to speak to her. Mm-mm. You want somebody to speak to her for you. She looked at him. Who do you want to speak to her for you? She pointed at me. All right, said Amario. He turned to me. You ready? You get to be Michelle, stand up now. I stood up. Imagine that you are Michelle. Your husband left you for this girl. What do you have to say to her? Michelle looked up at me the way you'd look up at a movie theater screen before the film comes on. I stood with my arms folded, took a gander at our sorry group, this sad couple, a suicidal truck driver, an anxious dentist, a teenage kleptomaniac, and an obsessive-compulsive postal clerk. The postal clerk was maybe 25 and skinny as a meth addict with limp brown hair and thin pale lips and a face as meek and guilty as a reprimanded dog. Her name was Peggy. She'd sit with her hands in her lap and tap her bony fingers together in a secret rhythm, apologizing for it if anybody noticed. Tap, 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 sorry, sorry. She annoyed me. Frankly, I think she annoyed everyone, but that isn't why I chose her. She happened to be around the age of Michelle's other woman, that's all. I revved up with a good old-fashioned, go fuck yourself! I glanced at Michelle. Her face had relaxed a smidge. Her slouchy husband beside her had his elbows on his knees, his face hidden in his hands. Slut, I said to Peggy, the postal clerk. The room was silent except for the ticking of a round, brown, institutional clock. Peggy looked at my shoes and tap-tapped her fingers together in her lap. I was afraid she might apologize, but she stayed quiet, thank God. Michelle leaned forward just slightly in suspense. I rubbed my hands together. You're a sad little slut, I said, and ugly too. Your face looks like it was thrown against a wall and scraped off with a spatula. All right said Omario. (laughs) A face like yours was growing in the weeds behind my house, I said. Wait a minute, did you find that face out back in the compost pile? I think I recognize it. I think my dog squeezed it out his ass this morning. (laughs) Insults are not so productive warned Omario, Peggy kept her head down, her pale neck was turning red. You think you can fuck my husband? I went on, you think you know how the world works? I'll show you how the world works. You fuck my husband, I'll fuck you. I'll fuck you with a cactus. I'll fuck you with a jackhammer. I'll fuck you with a drilling rig until black oil spouts right out your... She lifted her face. It was wide-eyed and crumpling. She tapped her fingers together like a life dependent. Amario stood up. Enough, he said, and put both his hands on both my shoulders. As he guided me out of the room, I tried to catch Michelle's eye, but I couldn't, not before he pushed me out and shut the door behind us. We stood together in the hallway. There was a framed watercolor of a beachy sunset on the wall. I wondered if it looked anything like where he grew up. I wondered what it was like for him to live out here in our cold, white, landlocked state. On the other side of the door we could hear Peggy crying, breathy little hyperventilating sniffles, and the murmuring of other people soothing her. That was inappropriate, Omar said sternly. I flashed him a little smile. But it was fun though, right? We're going to have to work on your anger issues. I'm not angry, I said. Do I seem angry? I was speaking for Michelle. The next day, Michelle found me behind the barn. We were supposed to be doing a walking meditation, but I'd found half a pack of cigarettes in the pocket of an old sweatshirt and smoking gave me about 12 times more serenity. From my spot next to the woodpile, we could see the others pacing slowly around and around the brick path that wound through the dead brown field. Close up, Michelle seemed a little less pinched. Her breath was a cloud of condensation in the late March chill. Got a cigarette, she said. We smoked together quietly. They all had such different posture, all the walking meditators. The anxious dentist shuffled quickly. The suicidal truck driver trudged, chin on his chest. Peggy left, Michelle said. The postal clerk? I said, I knew who she meant. She left because you yelled at her. Michelle inhaled, exhaled. A little reproachfully, she added, she's only 22. She shouldn't have been here in the first place, I said. She should have been out in the world, thickening up her skin. Someone like her, it isn't going to do her any good hiding herself away at a place like this. These kind hearted dipshits are just going to tell her she's okay the way she is when she isn't. None of us are. I dropped my cigarette into the cracked cold dirt. Michelle smoked slowly. I'm getting a lot out of this experience, she said, looking out at the brown field and white sky. I'm finding it pretty transformative. She sounded a little like someone had asked her to appear in some retreat center promotional materials. I don't know that Roy is getting as much out of it as I am. Roy's a tool, I said. But he's doing it for me, and that's enough. When we go home, she said, I will have more power over him than I've ever had. Little pockets full of power that he's kept on him for years will be turned inside out and emptied out like spare change on the bedspread. And then I'll pick that power up and keep it for myself. You're not going to kick him out, I said. Why would I? She dropped her cigarette, too, and dug it into the ground with the heel of her shoe. He's afraid of me now. My husband's always been afraid of me, I said. She said, I bet. He never told me until 20 years in. You're lucky. Not lucky, I said, jealous. She snorted. Of me? Of him? I'm gonna be afraid of him. Turned out Peggy wasn't 100% gone. She came back a couple nights later to say what she needed to say to me. Lying in the single bed in my bare, cramped bedroom, I heard a car on the gravel outside my window and opened my eyes to see the wall go bright, illuminated by headlights, and then go dark again. I heard her shrill voice calling up for me, calling my name. I pulled back the cheap curtain and opened the window to see her down there in the driveway. She was wearing snow boots, though it hadn't snowed in weeks, and pajamas and a long red flannel. She looked like she'd just come from a slumber party with some lumberjacks. Hey, bitch, she called up to me. She brought her hands together at belly height and tapped her fingers together, one, two, three. Hey, shitface," I called down. She said, I just came back to tell you you're pathetic. I'm pathetic. I laughed, she tapped, tap tapped. You're a bullshit person with a bullshit attitude.
3: <laughs> she wrenched
4: her hands apart and balled them up into two white fists. You think you're fucking funny, but you're not! You think you're some kind of strong-ass woman, but you're pathetic! You're disgusting! I can't believe anybody would marry you! Your husband must be either brain-dead or a masochist! (laughs) She looked up at me and waited for me to yell back. Her newfound strength was a miracle. It made me hungry. Go on, I said. (laughs) You're fat, too! She waved her little fists around with rage. You're fat and your face is bloated as a drowning victim's. You smell like cigarettes and sandwich meat and dirty hair. Your husband must be blind and deaf and have no sense of smell. (laughs) Fucking you must be like getting sucked into putrid quicksand. She wasn't yelling anymore so much as free associating. (laughs) In the bedrooms next door, people were waking, windows were opening. My heart had quickened. Go on, go on, I said. Come out here and make me, she yelled back. Where are you, chicken shit? I turned away from the window to find my shoes. What do you think you're going to do? What do you think you're going to do to me? You're nothing, less than nothing. You're what nothing has when it's got nothing left. I gave up looking and ran downstairs barefoot, almost tripping at the bottom, almost falling out the front door. The ground was bitter cold and the rocks pierced the soles of my feet, but I made my way to her. She was standing outside her car, and when I got close enough, I could see her eyes were liquid as melted ice and steaming. I was all charged up, electric. I took her in my arms and squeezed her hard. She was taller than me, but she put her wet, cold face in the spot between my head and shoulder, and she squeezed me back. My feet were numb, and I was pulsing everywhere. Thank you, I said. I wanted her to come inside, but she'd said what she had to say. we let each other go, and her thin lips twisted up in a victorious smile.
3: You're nothing,
4: she whispered, and tapped her fingers, one, two, three. Then she got back in her car and drove away. I turned back toward the broad clapboard wall of the big house and saw a face at every window. They'd all been watching me, Michelle, her husband, everyone. I pulled at the fabric of my sweatpants and gave them a grotesque curtsy in the cold, mugging like a hammy kid for a camcorder, yelling up, anybody else want to join the show? They didn't smile, but they didn't look away. Pussies, I shouted. One by one, each curtain fell. My heart beat harder with the disappearance of each face. Peggy's the only one of you with any balls. Then the only face in any window was the reflected moon. I raised both my middle fingers at the clapboard, at no one. My feet were numb and the sweat on my neck was prickling. I went back in. It was raining the day my husband came to pick me up. I was waiting outside on the covered porch with all my things, the last to go. I got to say goodbye to the teenaged kleptomaniac whose mother arrived in a black Mercedes. To the anxious dentist who wouldn't make eye contact when he shook my hand, and to the suicidal truck driver who took a deep, uneven breath before stepping off the porch as if he were stepping off a cliff. Michelle came outside with her slouch husband. Pull it around, she ordered him, and then she stood with me and waited while he did. It's been good knowing you, I said. She said, it's been something. He pulled up in the car and came out with an umbrella to escort her back to the passenger's side. Standing there at the foot of the porch steps, getting soaked, holding up a hand to help her down, he looked like the happiest man alive. How this bullshit place could have worked so well for them, I can't begin to know. Omario came out, too, to see everybody off. When Michelle and the slouch had gone, he looked at me and sort of tilted his head back and shook it, smiling. Well, he said... He seemed sincere. Good luck. I know you'll need it. He laughed that low, musical laugh of his and went back inside to chat with Clover. I stood there watching the rain. Close by, you could see every drop, round and hard, until it splatted. It dripped off the porch roof and puddled in the dirt, but far off by the trees, it was just a veil of grey, and up in the clouds, it was nothing at all. The old teal Chevy rolled up and my husband reached over to open the passenger door. I dragged my bags and body down the wet steps and through the mud. When I'd got in and thrown my shit in the back, he sat there a moment, looking at me as if I might be someone new. Well, he said, I wanted to say, the fuck does that mean? I wanted to say, well, what, you fucking fool? I wanted to say, are you happy now, you granola-crunching pea brain twit? What did you do while I was gone? Did you join the goddamn Hari Krishnas? Go to yoga and learn how to suck your own cock? God knows I'm not about to suck it for you, you fat old turd. I wanted him to yell back at me, call me a harpy, a blight, a waste. I wanted him to throw me out on the wet grass and push my face and body in the frigid mud. But he wouldn't, I knew he wouldn't. Those days were done. I didn't want him to turn away from me, so I said nothing at all. He squeezed my shoulder and restarted the car, and we drove in silence over the gravel, down to the gate and through to the road, past a couple of flooded strip malls and blinking yellow stoplights, and then we were on the highway that would take us home. The sky got dark and he flicked on the headlights and I watched the piercing rain ahead go from invisible to illuminated to invisible again. How could I tell him that what I wanted was for him to tell me I was nothing? How could I ask him to erase me, to let me float away beyond the windshield wipers into the dead black sky?
0: Thank you very much, Michaela. And that's it from us for tonight. Um, You'll find all the stories from tonight on our website at LiarsLeagueNYC.com by the end of tomorrow. The recordings will be online by the beginning of next week. Um, We will be back here on Wednesday, December 4th for our next show, which is Intimacy and Isolation. And uh, we're going to be very excited to be featuring a story by Brian Burnbaum, co-founder of Dead Rabbits Reading Series, and author of the recently published Emerald City. Uh, Brian will also be um, my quiz partner as well. So I bet you won't do it with half the panache that Rachel did, I think, tonight. Uh, the deadline for submissions, if you're interested in submitting a story, is Monday, 4th of November, and you can see our website for full submissions guidelines. Um... You can find out more about Liars League on our website, again, at liarsleagnyc.com, on our Facebook page or our Twitter feed. But I would mostly right now just like to say a big thanks to uh, everyone here at KGB, uh, in particular, Dan and Seiji behind the bar for looking up to you. Round of applause for Let's give a big hand up to our writers, Katherine Shaw, ladies and gentlemen, Williamson,
2: Arthur Longworth, and
0: Rachel Lyon, and our actors. Rachel Brun, Mark Willett, Michael Petricelli, and Michaela Morton. We'd like to thank you for flying with Liars League NYC. We know you have a choice of reading series, but we're grateful for your custom. That's it from us for tonight. I've been Andrew Lloyd-Jones. This has been Liars League NYC. Good night. (laughs)